Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. episode, I speak with Dr. Todd McGowan. Todd is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Vermont. He is also the co-host of the podcast, Why Theory? In this episode, we discuss his book, Emancipation After Hegel, Achieving a Contradictory Revolution. In this conversation, we explore various topics, including Todd's conservative Christian upbringing, Sigmund Freud and the unconscious, Hegel's understanding of contradiction, the philosopher Heraclitus, Hegel's understanding of God and Christianity, happiness and meaning, Don Draper and the TV series Mad Men, and so much more. Guys, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Todd is one of my favorite thinkers. His thought has shaped me so much personally and in terms of my work as a therapist with men. I constantly come back to this idea that contradiction is at the very heart of existence and that we cannot remove the barrier from our life, that in so many ways, the obstacle is the way. I hope that you're intrigued by that idea, that you're challenged by it, and that you take some time to reflect on what that could mean for you. Have a conversation with a friend, go out for a beer, enjoy some time in dialogue with others. As always, continue the conversation.
Todd, thank you so much for being a part of my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I'm, I'm so thankful for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I, uh, I told my wife that I would not fangirl today, but uh, w- one of the things in all seriousness that I was talking to her about was it's been awesome starting this podcast because I've been able to interview some of my favorite podcasters. And so Why Theory has been one that I've listened to since the beginning, I think in 2016. Um, and I just think it's fucking incredible. And I'm just so inspired by your thought and it's shaped me personally in my therapy. And I'm just excited about getting in this conversation with you. Wow. So you were one of the two people that have listened from the beginning. <laughs> now, now I will say, I don't know if I'm the same as everyone else. I, I don't always understand what you guys are talking about, but um, I maybe extract about 75% of it. And that's partly why I want to talk to you to understand it better. <laughs> well, that's about how much I think the percentage that we understand. So oh, okay. I think you're just about our level. Okay. So I'm doing good. all right. Okay. I'll take that. Yeah, that's exactly our level. So but before we kind of get into the conversation, would you mind just spending a couple moments for the listeners describing who you are and what you're up to in terms of scholarship and your career? Sure. I uh, I hate to think I have a career, but I teach at the <laughs> University of Vermont. I teach at the University of Vermont, and I, I, I think of myself as I write on theoretical questions that are interesting to me. So I, I talk a lot about psychoanalysis in terms of philosophical uh, problems, uh, Hegel, dialectics, Kant, German idealism is very important to me. And then tying that to political problems like, you know, how political change happens, what the situation for the left is. And then, then, and then to the personal, like what role does the unconscious play in the, you know, our psychic live and lives. And then, you know, what, what, uh, how does enjoyment structure what we do and how do we, I don't know. How do we live? Uh, how do we live in this situation that we're in? I guess those kind of things. And but I teach I, I, I my most of my teaching is in uh, film. At, you know, right. I'm teaching a class right now on Sopranos. So, oh, my God, if you could see yeah. it, I know you can't see it, but uh, I have this huge fucking picture of Tony Soprano in my podcast studio. I'll have to send it wow. to you. Yeah. And then yeah, you should send it. Yeah. And then on the other side is Don Draper, which I hope we could get into because you, you've been talking about you know, seasons, the ending of season six versus the ending of season seven in the last couple episodes. Yeah. And I was thinking maybe we could tie that in. So I'd be great. I, 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 I have to say, uh, you know, I think wire is my favorite of all, but you know, I Mad haven't Men- seen that. And I'm embarrassed uh, to admit that a client of mine was talking to me about it today. And I was like, okay, I got to watch that. Yeah, it's pretty great. So I think wires, but then Mad Men is my second favorite I've ever seen. It's okay. pretty, it's I, pretty I, I think, I think it's my first, but it's, it's definitely up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. Okay. So, so, okay. Thanks for kind of introducing yourself. Let me start with this question. I know over the years you've sort of alluded to the fact that you kind of grew up in a conservative Christian home. And that's one of the things that comes up kind of in the scope of this podcast is just wrestling with things like religion and spirituality and how that connects to psychoanalysis. My, my question for you, if, if you're okay with it is, is there any sort of concept or idea from that time that you've kind of really rejected and, and maybe rejected for important reasons? And then the, the mm-hmm. other side of that question is, is there something from that time that you still find that you embrace and that's important to you? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm more than happy to answer it. I've no, no one's ever asked me that before. So uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, See, I'm a therapist. I, say... I got to go back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's good. No, it's great. Uh, I, I guess what I've what I've rejected most of all is the rigidity of it. Mm. You know, like the, you know, like the the idea, and, and and this was a big thing. You know, obviously, if you any acquaintance with the fundamentalist mindset, like the idea of hell is a big thing, and right. like and if you sin, you're going to hell. And so that's been a that's been a thing that I've completely rejected. That notion of like sin, hell. I, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe I haven't rejected sin, but I certainly have rejected the notion <laughs> like the sinners are going to hell. So, uh, that would be the thing I've rejected most of all, I would say the thing I've, re- I, I've accepted. I mean, I, I guess this, but this isn't really an answer because this is, I, this is part of my turning away was I, I found certain theological thinkers like Kierkegaard and Augustine. And sure. that was already a movement away. And so that I've, I, those, those are clearly figures that are still really close to me and proximate for me. Uh, 
And I, I guess the, I guess just certain like simple parts of uh, the gospels, I find myself returning to them all the time. And, you know, like I, that were taught to me in Sunday school. So I, 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 you know, like, uh, I don't know, Ma- Matthew seven, one is, a, is one that really kind of, it's, you know, do you know what it's judge not lest you be judged. Yes. I, that always, that sort of stuck with me from that time. Uh, and you know, the Corinthian, like first Corinthians, like, Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. I mean, all of those kind of things like really uh, still have an impact on me. And my my spouse, who's Jewish, says she often will see me reading the gospel. She's like, I caught you. <laughs> I caught you, I caught you reading that stuff. Uh, so that's still a really that, that's still a big part of what I what I think in just my daily life. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Um Great. I appreciate you kind of answering that. Okay. So the, the, the second question that I had, you know, and this is kind of getting into your book on Hegel and probably the idea that I'm most drawn to in your work is kind of his notion of contradiction. Um, almost, almost I, I don't know if you would put it this way, but, but contradiction at the heart of existence in some ways. Um, and, and, and I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, my real first introduction to Hegel was, you know, an undergraduate course, Intro to Philosophy, and it, it was reduced to, he was this totalizing figure, and it's yeah. all about the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which I know you don't like, so I was hoping you could start there. What does he mean yeah, by contradiction? That, yeah, so it's, I, in my book, basically, I take that as the point, that misunderstanding as the point of departure in order to work in the exact opposite direction to say, look, he's not, his philosophy is never about, and I I like what you said about a contradiction at the heart of existence. Like, I think that's basically his ultimate point that everything is contradictory and that, that the, that everything's inability to just be itself is what creates movement, change, and, and, and everything that we think of as life. Right. And so that, the and it, it, I find it interesting, sad that the predominant reading of Hegel goes in the other direction. <laughs> like thinks yeah. of him as someone who's eliminating contradiction by, you know, there's a problem, and then he the contradiction uh, creates this drive to synthesize, and then that eliminates it. And I think if you read the phenomenology or the science of logic closely, it's it's pretty clear that, or at least it's clear to me that it's all about what what he's interested in is the contradiction and about preserve and the movement forward is about finding a way to preserve it in the face of what seems like a resolution of it. So it, it strikes me that it's a way of that whole reading is a way of dulling down the radical, what I see as the radical impact of Hegel's philosophy. And, you know, it, it does start in some sense with Marx because Marx has this notion of a, progressive unfolding of history and so like contradictions in capitalism will be resolved in communism and and i i just think that's not a hegel's not a progressive like even though that's the really the way he's understood as this he's telling a progressive story of history i think that that's a complete misunderstanding of how he thinks precisely because of what you said this idea that contradiction is existential right so there's no way that we ever overcome it there's no progress beyond it Mm. we'll see and and why i said it's it's this idea that i come back to time and time again in my own therapeutic work and it's not so much with every client that i'm framing it with these words because a lot of them wouldn't be this philosophical but some of them are you know they they come into the therapy office basically asking me to take away their fundamental contradiction I, I, right. I'm not saying they're they're using those words, but that's what they're saying. And some of the first conversations we have to have is, I, I'm not capable of doing that. We, we we can't get rid of contradiction. It's maybe figuring out how to reconcile ourselves to that. And, and I was hoping maybe you could talk about what that would look like. But yeah, I, I just think so many people long to have the contradiction erased. And I just don't think it's possible. Right, right. I think that's right. And I think that for sure. I mean, it, it, it's interesting that in psychoanalysis, I think Freud came up against that again and again and again. And, and the way he puts it in a way that today we think of as infelicitous is when he says, like, men come into an analysis, they can't get over the fear of castration and women can't get over 
the desire to overcome castration. Okay, so that's clearly not the way we would put it today. But his point is just what your point is, right? Like, I want to find a way to overcome this contradictory state that I'm in as a subject. So I think it's interesting that that's a point where Hegel and psychoanalysis come together. And yeah, exactly. Like the point of analysis, and as I see it, and I think as Freud saw it, is how do we bring us to a point where you can be reconciled with contradiction or you know, I, I once heard someone say, embrace your lack, right? Like something yes, like that. Like, yes. that, I think that seems like, you know, and I think one way that you can think about that, and I think about that always is think about certain obstacles that I have in my existence, you know, and, and then I think like, well, okay, that obstacle is actually, it's not just an obstacle. It's also, it's also helping. It's also a thing that drives me forward. So it's not just to, to not look at the obstacle as purely an obstacle, but also as an enabling thing. And I think that double attitude is really part of what I would call a psychoanalytic cure or something. That is so powerful. In fact, and this was a line, I think, from you in the book, but I wanted to title this episode like the fecundity of the barrier as, <laughs> yeah. as, as a way to get to that idea. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, w one of the philosophies that, I mean, I, I find it problematic in a lot of ways, but so there's some things about it that are helpful for like psychotherapy is uh, kind of stoicism. And, uh, and, you know, Marcus Aurelius has this line in the book, which has really become popularized now in his meditations, where he says the obstacle is the way. And I, I don't know that that's exactly what you're talking about, but but I was hoping you could kind of speak to that. Is, is it what When you hear that concept, the obstacle is the way, how do you understand that sort of from your perspective? Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's okay. exactly right. That, that I mean, I have other problems with stoicism. Sure. And, and we could talk about that if you wanted. But but that I think is I think Aurelius has a lot of great insights and, and the whole stoical tradition. Ha I mean, I just think that my objection would be that it tries to turn inward to totally and not try to change the world. Right. But uh, I do think that's. I, I, I mean, the obstacle is the way in the if you mean it in the sense that it's the thing that actually drives you out into the world. Right. Like, I think mm. the problem to me with to with stoicism in a certain way, it's conceived is that the obstacle becomes a reason to turn back away from the world. Right. Gotcha. And, and I think if, that if you think about it as the obstacle is the way like that's the path, even I think Taoism I wonder if you could rec when you said the way I immediately thought of of the Tao and yeah that's good like, that seems like too the same kind of idea right like you have to think of the thing that's the obstacle as also the thing that is the you know this I I often cite this on the podcast and I write about it this this concept from uh, Johann Gottlieb von Fichte of the the anstos the the obstacle like it's the obstacle we run into but the anstos means in German, it's this greatest word because it means the obstacle and the impetus. Wow. And so I think that, you know, we don't have it. Unfortunately, there's no word in <laughs> Damn English. Damn it. Too, <laughs> hey, you need to create one. Like, I know, I know, I know. And so that really, I think, captures how we should think of the obstacle, right? Like think of the obstacle as also this impetus to do something. And I think it's, you know, uh, I guess I also think of this in terms of like things that seem like they're holding us down. Okay. If we look at, if we look at that, they're also things that are driving us forward, you know, like, uh, I don't know, having a, having a crappy car or having to ride your bike to work, like all these things like that, that are seem like they're, or even in our interpersonal relations, right? Sure. Like things that seem like the other person we're bothered by these things. They're also a thing that is driving us forward, right? To like, I don't know, like I have, um, sometimes I have classes that are really quiet and they don't speak very much and it, it annoys me. And I think like, that's just an obstacle to me having a good <laughs> class. But then I think, well, I, I used to rely on the, on the students to drive the class forward. And so when they're really quiet, it forces me to be more prepared, have more like work on what I can say and be able to talk in front of people for 75 minutes without, you know, relying on them to drive the, the discussion forward. So that's just an example. That's not a stupid personal experience example, but that's, the oh, kind, like that's what I mean. Like that way of like seeing this thing that seems like a, 
a pure obstacle and how it actually is driving you forward. I mean, obviously there are pure obstacles, right? Like for Ukraine, Russia is just a pure obstacle. They have to fight them. But there, I think a lot of things, especially in our personal lives, uh, have this double quality of it's an obstacle and it's an impetus driving us forward. No, that's, that's, that's really well said. I, um, I, you know, I, I think about Freud and, you know, his understanding of the unconscious. And I was just hoping you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Cause I know you spend a whole chapter in your book on Hegel sort of connecting the two figures. Yeah. Would, would you yeah. mind speaking on that a little bit? No, not at all. Not at all. So, right. Right. I think Freud unconscious is probably his most important discovery. And the idea is, I think not that. So German, interestingly, the the predominant way of talking about the unconscious when Freud started to write was bewusstlos, conscious lust, right? Mm. Not having. And he he didn't invent the word, but it was an uncommon word. He said, no, I'm going to use this term unbewusst. So un, so it gives it a agency all of its own. It's not just without it's not it's not just like consciousness, but not conscious. It's it's actually its own he called it an other scene, right? So right. It, it operates according to a different logic. And the, one of the ways that I like to think of this is that the that consciousness always operates according to logic of success. Like I'm I'm looking, I'm I, I see something that I want to do, like even on the stupidest level, like I see a glass of water, I want to take a drink of water, or sure. I I, I'm going to drive to the store. I have a goal of driving to the store. Hopefully I'll succeed at driving to the store and not get in a crash. But the unconscious operates in exactly the opposite that it gains. It's, it enjoys itself. It dri- it drives our enjoyment through failure. And then mm. it's, con- it's constructed along the logic of failure. So it uses the successes of consciousness as ways to drive us into modes of failure. That's what I think he's getting. And so the most obvious example, I think, is the Freudian slip, right? Like the, oh, yeah. you're trying to talk in a successful way and communicate an idea successfully, but then the unconscious jumps in and causes you to say this thing that you didn't mean to say. Yesterday I was teaching and I said, you know, it's like the female, I meant to say the female genitalia. Mm. And I said, it's like female vagina. And it's like, it was a dumb slip. It didn't even, you know, it would take a little psychoanalysis to even try sure. to get at what, why that even mattered. But like, is vagina somehow, I got to say something worse, maybe more profane than, gen- I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but just like the point would be that that failure of consciousness is the moment where the unconscious emerges. So it's structured completely differently than consciousness. That's why dreams are have this other logic that they pursue than consciousness sure oh yeah well you know and even though i don't do freudian like psychoanalysis even in my own therapy when there's a freudian slip or when someone shares a dream that they're so embarrassed about or they're like this is so fucking weird i don't want to talk about it i sort of try to prod them to explore it because it always brings up some really good material and and it's letting the unconscious speak right which i think is so important I think it's really important. And, you know, Freud's idea, that whole idea of free association analysis right. is that when you're just talking and not guarding yourself, then you can get these moments where even better, where something unconscious will emerge and you'll subvert your own conscious discourse. Mm. Right. Like that. So I think that's the what's interesting is that relation of there's a conscious discourse and then the subversion of it is where the unconscious chimes in. Yes. So in your book, you know, on the chapter discussing Freud and the unconscious, you talk about the Freudian slip and then, you know, dreams. But then you mention and you get into Hegel where he talks about how the deed comes out, you know, that that behavior almost kind of reflects the unconscious. And I just wanted to see if this is kind of what you were talking about. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, like in couples therapy, a husband will say, but my intentions were X, Y or Z or, you know, I, I really meant to do whatever. And the wife mm-hmm. looks at him and says, well, fuck. But what I saw was, you know, <laughs> this, this, and this. And so I, I, I always see the unconscious sort of speaking through their behavior. Yeah. I think that's the, that to me is the most important manifestation, okay. right? Like that. Yeah. That, that, and that's why it's, it, it's so your example is so good because the, the, the person who's doing it doesn't, 
recognize that that's what they're doing, right? right. Like they're it's just they're completely blind to it because their intention and their deed don't line up at all. And I always say to my classes and when I give talks, I, I always say, like, look, your other people know your unconscious better than you do. Like that's a baseline psychoanalytic idea, I think. And Absolutely. it's because because you they see how you're acting and you can never look, get outside of yourself and see how you act. And so and and you're right to say that or I make the <laughs> you're right to say this point that I made that uh, <laughs> that Hegel, like the truth of a person is their deed. Right. Like mm. that is. And I think that's the point at which he really intersects with psychoanalysis more than anything. And one of the things he does in each of his works, especially phenomenology, is take an idea and say, what is the deed of this idea? Right. Like, let's just let's just follow it through and see wow. what it really what the truth of it is. And then that and, and, and that's how you determine what the idea really is. It's not what the people who have the idea say to themselves. It's how it actually works itself out. And I think that's really to me. That's the most psychoanalytic dimension of Hegel's thought, really. Oh, I love it. Okay, a question again about Hegel and his relationship to the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus. Yeah, and and, and, yeah. and I guess what what, I, what I'm really wondering is, um, and and I did a, an episode with another friend. We were discussing a, a psychology book by a guy named James Hillman on his understanding of war, and and he picks up on this idea from Heraclitus that you know that war or, you know, in the Greek, the word is polemos, like this fundamental strife or tension is the father of all things or is at the heart of existence. And so I, I didn't right. know if there was a connection to Hegel with, with, with that idea of, you know, you, you can't remove this fundamental strife. It's, it's sort right. of intrinsic. Right. Yeah, I think it's, a, it, that's a, it's an interesting question about Hegel. So I just wrote an essay called why Hegel uh, was wrong about his own, theory of war, right? Why, okay. why Hegel didn't understand <laughs> Hegel's theory of war. Uh, because he actually, his position is, is like Heraclitus. Like he doesn't think that, he doesn't think that in the philosophy of right, philosophy of history, he thinks that war is actually structurally necessary for mm. society. But, and this is where I think he's different than Heraclitus. And I, and I think it's the difference between an ancient pre-Socratic philosopher and a modern philosopher. Okay. That for him, contradiction is first internal to the subject. And then when it manifests itself in an external antagonism, say between, uh, I don't know, me and my enemy at the University of Vermont, right? If I had, hopefully I don't have it. <laughs> sure, I, so the, 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 the external manifestation is for Hegel a way of hiding from or, or, obviating the the internal contradiction. So mm. I think actually war, he should think, he doesn't think this, he should think that war is a way of missing, like each society should look internally and see the internal contradiction and see how war is a way of actually fleeing from that inter, internal, internal contradiction gotcha. into an external gotcha. antagonism. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the, the German Nazi philosopher Carl Schmitt, his idea was, War is constitutive of politics or the relationship between us and them, this external opposition. But if you think about it, it's just not true, right? Like mm. if you're in a war, what happens to the internal politics of a country? They just disappear, right? Like, right. like think about the support for Bush during the Iraq war. It ballooned to like 90%. So basically political division, it was a Stalinistic proportion, which means there's no political division at all. And sure. so it's just interesting. That I think Schmidt's totally wrong that to think that war is somehow constitutive of politics because no war actually makes politics disappear. External conflicts hide the internal contradiction. I think, and so I think that that's so I think that's the, but but it's still Heraclitus does get right. I think that the the essence of contradiction as constitutive of existence. I just think he he thinks of it in terms of external strife rather than internal contradiction. Okay. 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 Let me let me let me okay. let me uh, phrase this question okay. this way. Um, so I often will start therapy by saying something like, and I kind of mean it tongue in cheek, but but it's real uh, that I I don't believe in happiness, 
but maybe we could figure out what like personal meaning looks like. And and I'll often throw out that that line from Freud. I don't know if it's apocryphal or or, or he actually wrote it near the end of his career where he says something like, you know, in therapy, the best that we can do is move someone from absolute misery to ordinary human unhappiness. Yeah. And and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Like when you hear the concept happiness, is, is that something that is something that, that you think about? Do, do you agree? Do you do you like the concept of happiness? How, how would you think about happiness? Is it problematic? No, I, I, I love how what you do, what you say. And it's from studies on hysteria. It's the last line. And he really does say it. Oh, OK. So it's, yeah, we're going to transform hysterical misery into common human unhappiness. And I. I say that all the time okay. to my to my classes to everyone I talk. To. So yeah, so I think that's per, I think happiness is you know a warm gun. I think okay, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a real problem. Like I think it's not a I don't think it's a philosophical or theoretical concept. And I I think it I think the pursuit of it is always ideological. Mm. So I don't think it's attainable. But I think to dedicate your oneself to pursuing it is always a misguided. Pursuit, for one thing, because it's not attainable, but also the things that you do on the way to attain it, you're always going to miss, I think, the real satisfactions that come in your that would come in your existence. So I think when you're thinking about happiness, for one thing, happiness, I think, always requires someone else's unhappiness to measure your happiness by. Oh, that's good. So I think that's that's the, to me one of the number one problems with it. But yeah, I just think. It's a, I, I, I find, I, I just find it risable as a, as an idea. And I, I, I really try to avoid being happy at all costs. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so yeah. if, if, if happiness is not the project that we're supposed to pursue, if, if, as we kind of agree, you, you can't eradicate contradiction, what, what is kind of the goal? Is, is there a goal? Uh, you know, you talk about reconciliation to contradiction. Hegel yeah. explores that. What, what does all that mean practically, do you think? Well, I think it means like we talked about about the obstacle, but I think okay. it means like in terms of like your psychic disposition, I think is what you're asking. Like, I think it means a, a, a satisfaction with the disruptions, right? Like mm. with the like the things that are like I'm I find satisfaction, even though. You know, I I have to get up at six a.m. or I, I I have insomnia. I, these are all things that are true. Sure. Uh, like that, all these are, are. I feel like oh, it's so tedious. Do I have to go and do my workout right when I wake? And and you know, like I feel it tedious, just like everybody else. And I th- but I then I think to myself, well, that tedium is what that that's the satisfaction of existence, right? Like there's no there's nothing there's no over the rainbow. And I think that that's like to see that is is I really think for Hegel the goal of philosophy, and okay. I think for Freud the goal of psychoanalysis. Okay, I, I actually wondered if you would connect it to what a lot of people talk about when it comes to just like working out or an exercise routine. Many people, I'm mean, including myself, I, I have one. I don't like doing it, but is it trying to find some kind of pleasure or satisfaction even in the dissatisfaction? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. Absolutely. Right. That, that there's a kind of, you know, the very routine itself, which is which is tedious and <laughs> like there's a certain satisfaction in that. Yeah. And that's what I think you have to find. And, and not th- I think the real thing that we're plagued by is the idea that there's a greater dis- there's a greater. I said that was a good slip because I said a greater dissatisfaction. That's but, a good slip. That there's a great that there's a greater satisfaction elsewhere, right up uh, over somewhere beyond in the neighbor's house. Like if I just look over there, they're really having a great time. But I think to think that no one else is having a better time than you is to me like a real key to psychoanalytic cure, Hegel's reconciliation with contradiction, all these things. I think like that's a big part of it. Like that the, to get away from this, I think, you know, paranoid, neurotic belief that there's somebody, I mean, both have them, the paranoiac and the neurotic, that there's somebody out there with some kind of satisfaction that I don't have and that I'm missing out on it. You know, that, that kind of idea, I think, really is crippling and, 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 and it's tied to this idea that I want to attain happiness. And, mm. and can- Got you. So it's now, maybe, maybe from, from another angle, is, is this sort of connected to your, to your last book? And I'll admit, I haven't read it. The, the idea that um, 
we find sort of equality or we got to think about universality in terms of like a shared lack or, 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 or you know, the, the reality that, that there is this sort of enduring contradiction, that that's the thing that we can actually all relate to? Yeah, absolutely. That's okay. the idea. Totally the idea. So it's nice because if you've just read one book of mine, you've really read all of okay, them. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's the idea, that it's a universality of what is absent or what is missing. And that, that so historically, so many thinkers thought of it universality in terms of mastery, in terms of like mm. we're going to impose one idea on everyone. And so that's why the the left turned away recently from universality to particularity and i see that as a as a, a sort of what i call it like a a miss a, a, a bad turn a, a incorrect turn and so part of it is to think about how we define universality as through what's missing through what's lacking rather than through what we have and then i think that and then you then that's something if 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 what we have is a certain shared non-belonging, then no mm. one can be excluded from it, right? Like you're just everyone shares a non-belonging. It's a, there's not a there's not a popular clique of those who don't belong because don't, not belonging is everyone. So that, I think that's really to me a really important part way to think about a political project. Sure, sure. I, I sometimes talk about it with clients using the metaphor that there really isn't sort of this utopic inner circle where, where you finally arrive and, and everything is sort of at ease and, and everyone connects and relates to each other, that, that that's just sort of a fantasy. Yeah, I think it's, it's so destructive, I think. And the, the proof of it seems to me to be that, <laughs> that all these totally rich people, what do they do? They create all kinds of additional problems for themselves, right? Like so they don't true. just like, they're not just like Jeff Bezos doesn't just sell all his stock, buy an island, move there and just, you know, hang out on the beach. Instead, what's he trying to do? Go out in outer space, do these other like start a healthcare thing that fails, like all these things. Right. Like, why does he do it? Why is he making he of all people? He could just take it easy. And yet there's absolutely no like the idea of taking it easy is not. It's not in the, it says it's not appealing to us. And so I think that that, I think looking at the old Uber wealthy, I think really nicely underlies this idea. Wow. No, I hadn't thought about that. That's really good. Now, would you mind for a moment speaking on like Hegel and religion? Cause that, that was an important part of the book. And I, I think even in the last couple of episodes of why theory you've, you've, I think the, maybe the, the penultimate one was. Hegel and religion, and this one was Hegel yeah. and absolute knowing, which I think touched on some religious ideas. What what is sort of Hegel's take on like Christianity or religion? Yeah, so he thinks he's a partisan of Christianity. Like he is not someone who thinks all religions are equal because for this this reason that he thinks that Christianity envisions God coming out of the infinite realm of the be- and we talked a lot about the beyond, right? And it's right. the same thing for him in Christianity that. For for the I think for the and this doesn't make sense if you think of contemporary fundamentalists because they still hold God in the position of the beyond for sure. Sure. But Hegel's idea is that Christianity brings God down from the beyond, puts God in the lowest possible position, dying in this ignominious way on the cross. And that 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 lowering, this absolute lowering of the infinite brings together the finite and the infinite for Hegel. So, so that we can see the way in which the, the thing that we think is the ultimate greatest power is also the lowest thing. And that, that for him, that's the entire key to his philosophy, because the whole point of dialectics is to see the connection between, you know, to see myself in absolute otherness, to see the way mm. in which what's beyond is actually what's closest inside of me. And that's what cr- the Christian experiment or experience that's what it shows to hegel and that's why it was so influential on him it really i mean there's a way in which his entire philosophy is just an attempt to philosophically explain christianity i think so that's wow i think it's it's hard to really under it's hard sorry it's hard to overstate i again slip it's hard to (laughs) overstate the importance of christianity for hegel okay now I, I would probably say that a lot of contemporary, you know, more fundamentalist Christianity misses that fundamental move that you're talking about 
What yeah. what do you see as some of the negative ramifications of missing that of not sort of going with Hegel and understanding the divine coming down, you know, in, into the finite and 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 really almost like maintaining that essential quality of contradiction. Right, right. I mean, that's what it does, right? It erases, like, fundamentalism is a way of escaping contradiction. So you you can think like, oh, I everything here is working out according to God's plan. Mm. Like, that's just, like, uh, clearly that's absurd. Right. But as, as long as you hold God in the beyond, like, the God can be separate, the plan can be working out down here. Sure. And we don't, and then I often hear people say this, like, we don't understand God's ways, right? But the point is, for Hegel, God doesn't understand God's ways, <laughs> right? So that that's the good Christian, I think, reading mm. of it. And But no fundamentals would say that, because then all of a sudden, God has to be just as flawed as we are. And that's the, I mean, that's Hegel's vision of the Christian God, that the, the flaws of humanity are really the flaws of God, right? Mm. So that's a that I mean, it solves a lot of these problems that theologians ran into historically, right? Like, how do you explain the birth of evil? Blah 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 right. blah. Right? Like for Hegel, it's it's very easy because God is all God is also has evil in it, and sure. God is also flawed and makes errors, right? So that so, I think that's a really important uh, important thing about his that that fundamentalism misses. Okay. Okay. Okay, Todd. I want to ask you a question. Ho- hopefully, it's not too much of like a like a you know like a, a movement in the in a wrong direction. But I, I guess you know the 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 project of the podcast is you know therapy for guys. I'm, I'm I'm trying to address sort of modern masculinity and maybe try to deconstruct it in some ways and think about it in in, in maybe healthier kind of forms. Do you or or Hegel or Freud have anything to say about sort of the problematic nature of masculinity today? And, and, and what are ways that you think about that big question? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I wonder if, are all your listeners women? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. The, the, you know, in, in terms of the an- analytics, I think like 80% are male and, you know, oh. the, the rest are women. And then a couple people that don't identify as either one. So. Don't identify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah, like I, I mentioned uh, Freud's side. I mean, Hegel's, Hegel's pretty much, I mean, a couple things. Hegel's pretty, has pretty traditional ideas of, of gender. Okay. Although uh, he, what's it, the, the interesting thing about it, though, is that the most of the, most, I think that's fair to say, most of the great Hegelian thinkers today are women. So oh, wow. it is interesting how his thought, and it's true in psychoanalysis too, like the, the most important contemporary theorists in psychoanalysis are primarily women. So there, there is a way in which both, I think, even though obviously Freud and Hegel thought of themselves as men, there's something in their thinking that mm. is, that is open to, or, or maybe opens up to, to female theorists in a way that, that other thinkers don't. Okay. Okay. But about, about the men question, like, I think that I think for both of them, it's interesting you said deconstruct masculinity, because I think for both of them, they would see this, what I talked about, identified with Carl Schmitt and this philosophy of, uh, you know, the friend and enemy. Yes. Like, I think, I think both of them are, I think traditional masculinity, as I understand it, is constructed around a pretty strong opposition between what it means to be a man and then what it means to be, like, when I was a kid, there were certain slurs that were used to if you weren't manly enough right and and yeah I like mean, a pussy still, pussy would be a good one <laughs> uh you know other there are other ones that are attached to gay sexuality right so right all, so that like all of that and i think for them both of them both hegel and psychoanalysis would both hegel and freud would see that there's something uh that, that, that this that attempt to like create this distance from the other with that that kind of term or even with just the very gesture of saying like I'm not that you're 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 actually affirming that you are that thing right mm. like for this great essay I think it's like 1928 or so called negation it's only like four pages and it, it, the main point it starts with this idea that 
I had this dream and I wasn't sure who this uh, person was, but it certainly wasn't my mother. And then Freud's like, okay, uh, it's clearly your mother. And so when I, when I hear people say a certain slur and they say like, I'm not that thing, that, that Freud negation essay comes right to my mind. So mm. I think that part of it is part of the, both of their instructive ideas to masculinity is every time you think that I'm not to be a man, I, I'm not that thing. You have to think like, wait a minute, why am I denying that I'm not that thing if I'm not actually proximate to that thing, right? Like I'm wow. I actually proximate to femininity. I am proximate to homosexuality. I am, pro, you know, like, or otherwise I wouldn't be denying it so vociferously, right? Mm. So every time, again, like with the Ukraine example, obviously there are things that you just deny and they're not you, right? Like right. I'm not a, whatever mass murderer or I'm not, you know, but, but I think most of the time when we go out of our way to deny that we are something or we, sorry, we aren't something, uh, then that means that we are that we, that thing is close to us. And so I think with masculinity that happens all the time. I mean, you, you do a podcast on this, so this must be pretty close to you, but that, sure. that, 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 I see that happen all the time. Right? Oh, absolutely. Like you know, I, I guess, I mean, I guess it's true that, you know, part of how, let's say, contemporary kind of toxic or rigid forms of masculinity are formulated are actually trying to evade that fundamental contradiction we've been talking about. They, they, they want yeah. it just to be kind of one-sided and, and to highlight these, these certain traits while denying all this other stuff that I think is actually within them as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think this guy, I mean, I'm sure you know this, this Missouri Senator Josh Hawley is about to, I don't, I don't know if the book has dropped yet. Called, okay. I think it's just called masculinity or something, but I imagine it's going to be all of this one sided thing, you know, and then like all these things, masculinity is not right. Like it's sure. not, we, it's not. And so I think that that, that seems to me like the real problem with the vision of the traditional. Yeah. Toxic. I, I like that. Word. I think that's a pretty, it's a little overused, I think, but sure. it's pretty, it does a pretty good job of, of, uh, of getting the idea, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, wh- wh- one kind of qu- last question around just like the masculinity thing. I-, I don't know how much you're aware of like a Jordan Peterson or, geez, even somebody yeah. like an Andrew Tate. Wh- wh- why I'm wanting to bring that up is because I almost exclusively see, you know, sort of young males, whether they're adolescents or just young adults, and, and-, and sometimes in the 30s and 40s, they're they're bringing these figures up a lot recently in like our psychotherapeutic work as sources of inspiration for their thinking, and uh, in in a lot of ways I'm finding these figures deeply problematic. But I'm I'm wanting to yeah. kind of just ask thinkers and intellectuals what they think are some of the problems with some of these guys. Yeah, how how long do we have here? We can <laughs> as long as you need. <laughs> uh, yeah, Peterson. So I I think you know. It's interesting because he, I mean, first of all, he, the, 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 the reliance on biology, I think is, Mm. you know, a real. And like the evolutionary psychology bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that that's just really, uh, you know, it's like, uh, talk about a way to avoid contradiction, right? Like you're just, (laughs) Oh, we just evolved into this and that's it. And, and, and what I like about, and this is what my point would be to anyone who's invested in that position is that, you know, even if it's true, like even if it's true that we've evolved to be blah, 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 psychically, which again, like obviously we've evolved biologically in a sure. certain way. But to say we've evolved like psych to transfer it to the psyche is a whole other ballgame, I think. Um, and so I think the first thing I would say is, you know, uh, I'll connect it to this guy. Do you remember this guy, Lawrence Summers, who was the president of Harvard for, I don't know, about 10 years? But, uh, about Vaguely familiar. Years. Okay, so he got in a lot of trouble because he's like, you know, what can you do? Like, men are just gifted in math and engineering, mm. and women are just, you know, better at communication and whatever. That's why we have such a bad, that's why we don't have enough women in these STEM fields, right? And then I thought, well, that's just a kind of a crazy thing, right? Because the whole way the psyche works is, like, let's suppose he's even right, that he's even right that biologically, physiologically, women are, say, less gifted in engineering or math. That could explain why there are no women in those fields, but it could also explain why those fields are dominated by women. Wow. Right? Like, like about how, like, I was, when I was a kid, I was, a, I was 
much more gifted in math. And I didn't learn to read until way late. I was a terrible in English, terrible, terrible. And what was it? And, and I took those whatever SAT again, like terrible on verbal math. No problem. Didn't didn't miss anything. So I, I what did I do? I go to graduate school in English, <laughs> right? I didn't go in math. So like to me, it's a perfect like my own situation. Not to I'm not that I'm the paradigm, but sure. Like I, 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 the thing I was gifted in, I was totally bored by and uninterested in. Right. Mm. But the thing that was challenging, difficult, that's what I found myself drawn to. So that's what my answer to be would, would be to Peterson. Like, okay, say you're right. Say there's even this evolutionary development. And so what, like it could, the, the, the social result of it could be the exact opposite of what you think it is. Right. Like, so if, so if men are, evolutionarily programmed to go take care of things. So their reaction could be, screw this. I'm going to stay home, watch the kids because I'm, I, I, I find this more of a challenge and more interesting than going out and bringing home the bacon, which is, I find boring and just what I'm supposed to do, blah, 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 blah. So that's what I would say. Like, it just, you, like you, the thing could be like the, the psyche response, this comes back to the unconscious thing, like the psyche responds in its own way to whatever our physiological imperatives are. It doesn't just follow, it doesn't just follow them. And so that's what, that's, that seems to me the saddest thing about the triumph of Peterson and the triumph of the will (laughs) is happening, right? Like the, it's just that, that whole way of thinking is a, is a, it seems like a strict biological determinism that fails to see the way in which the psyche always is responding to that determinism, not just following it. And so I, I guess that would be my main point. I don't know. Maybe you have other things about this because I, 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 you know, I've, I've followed him a little bit because I don't know, you remember this, I think just before the pandemic, Slavoj and he had a debate. Yeah. And yeah. And so I, I, I paid a little bit of attention to him then. And then I, then I knew he had a drug problem, which I, I, you know, I didn't take any pleasure in it, but it sure. was ironic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Had a, uh, so, but then after that, I didn't, I stopped paying attention. Well, although I think he's exploded now even more larger than he ever was. He has. Yeah, he has. I, I think, and this won't be original to me by any means. And, and I think you can articulate it far better than I can. I think I fundamentally struggle with almost like the individualism of it or, or just kind of the self-help uh, sort of what I think you were alluding to with your maybe struggle with certain forms of stoicism. It's it's more of a retreat inwards or just focus. You know, he says, you know, just clean your room before you can change the world. And, and I, I guess I get that at one level, but there's this social reality that we have to pay attention to that, um, you know, it's not going to go away. I know. I, I isn't, isn't attempting to reverse it, like change the world. Then, yeah, your room, whatever. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 I, I, it's, I, yeah, I don't really have a problem with, uh, the, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that can, I, I can see the appeal though. Right. Because yes. it's, I think you're right to connect it to stoicism and this, like, I'm going to just retreat to my own thing because it's so horrible out there. Right. Sort of controlling what you, what you feel like you can control. Yeah. Right. 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 I feel like we should not control what we can't control and try to control what we can't. I, I want to reverse. <laughs> well, you know, okay. Okay. So, so, so you're, you're like an anti-stoic. So say more about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think you fund the things you think you can control. Sorry, you can't control them, but you things you recognize are out of your control. Maybe you can make a little dent in those. Mm. That's all I would. Right. Like I think the, when we think we can control something, sorry, that's when we're, that's, a, I mean, I, to me, that's the, just the basic lesson of Freud, right? That you think like he famously said, right. That Copernicus showed we're not the center of the universe the, and uh, Darwin showed we're not the center of the earth. And I showed we're not the center of our own selves, right? We're not the master of our own self. And I, I think, think that, that's so fundamental. Yeah. So fundamental. Absolutely. And so you think there are these things you can control, those are the things that are precisely escaping you because you think you can control them. Mm. So that's why that alcoholics, well, I'm for trying to cure alcoholism, of course, <laughs> but I think that little ma- motto they have, I think it's completely the wrong. serenity Complete. prayer. Is that, is that what you're yeah. referring to? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's funny. So okay. t- talking about alcohol, um, m- maybe this is a good time to segue into like Don Draper 
and Mad Men. I, I mean, yeah. there's there's so much that that I want to ask you about that. But maybe I can just start by asking, why would it be maybe your second favorite show? It's bordering on being my first. Let's okay. just say it's oh, very man. close. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. definitely very my close. favorite. I, in fact, I'm embarrassed okay. to admit this. I, I'm I'm watching it for the fourth time. No, that's what there's no embarrassment in that. Okay. <laughs> I've seen it three times okay. and I just, and I, I would, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to teach it very soon. So oh that'll be my, my fourth time. Well, you'll have so, to send me the yeah. syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love it so much. And I think what I love about it is that it takes the heart of capitalism, right? Mm. Advertising. Right. And it shows, and, and what's interesting about it, I mean, you could imagine a show where, uh, it's just showing how corrupt these guys are and how all they care about is making money. And it's just, it's just how it's just totally banal there, but it's the, it doesn't do that at all. Right. Like there are some people like that, like maybe Pete Campbell is like oh, that. You hate, you hate him for that. <laughs> and, uh, Harry is maybe like that, but, but Don and Peggy who are the heroes of the show, I think, right. Like they, What's great about them is they're they're constant. You constantly see them doing these ethical acts, mm. right? Like it's it, and it's a kind of incredible, really. Like like when Don goes to see Pe- like Peggy, they, they and the way they show this is pretty amazing, right? Like Peggy goes to pick him up when he's had a car accident with his lover, right? And she's the only person he could call, and you're like, what? He sucks. Why would he call her? It's terrible to make this underling do that. And then you get a flashback to when she gave birth to Pete's kid. Right. He is the only one who comes to see her and says to her, you know, you'll get over this. Mm. Like you just put it on you, you'll get over this. And I thought like that seemed to me like that's the kind of thing that most people wouldn't do. Like not let alone an advertising executive. Right. Yes. And then so many other things like when Pete is going to try to expose him as this drafts or this deserter from the military, right. et cetera. He goes in first to say, no, you're not going to hold this over my head. I love and then that. Pete says to him, I, I love the scene. And Pete says to him, you'd rather shoot yourself than see me advance. And he goes, you're a profoundly unethical person. Or he says something like right. that. I don't want to see you prosper. And so, and then it, it doesn't ends up being nothing, right? Like, I think that that's, that to me, that was one of my favorite moments in the series, precisely mm. because he's constantly willing to like take the shot at himself. He does it with the cigarettes, you know, like oh, yeah, when he, when he writes the letter, writes the letter. And then the, in the season before that other the British company has a hold over them. And so they fire themselves. Right. From the, And that's his idea, too. So it's like he just the idea of like shoot like this idea of from from speed, like shoot the hostage or from usual suspects, like shoot it yourself. Like he seems to me to be the best fight club, like punch it yourself. Right. He seems to be the best at that gesture. So I guess what I love is the way, I mean, of course it gets appropriated by capitalism at some point, but he's constantly doing these things that are not really, that are outside the orbit of capital. And so I I guess that's what I love so much about the show. Okay. Now, do, do you see the show exemplifying what, what Hegel talks about in terms of the contradiction, which you've written about? Like, how, how would you maybe connect? I, I, I love that on Why Theory, you guys are always ending with a lesson, sort of connecting it to a show to watch or a movie to watch. I, I was hoping that sort of Mad Men could be kind of the lesson, right, of, of like contradiction. But, but I, I, I yeah. didn't know exactly how to connect the dots. I was hoping you could help me. Yeah, I think that's a great one, actually, because the the... When Don is at his, I think it's actually, it's fascinating because these moments where Don is able to act like this are points where I'd say he's reconciled with contradiction, right? Like Mm. he's, he's able to embrace his own symbolic nullity in a way that no one else can. But then if you look at the way he behaves personally, it's terrible. Oh yeah. Right. Like he, and he's, and he's, he's completely seduced. It's like he's not really concerned with the accumulation of money during the his on his job, but the accumulation of women he's absolutely obsessed with. Yes. Right. So there's a that's so he's sort of torn into, I think. But I think he 
in, in certain instances, like the ones we talked about, he embraces contradiction. But then there are also these other moments, especially in his relationship with women, where he's completely flying from it. And the show even shows us, I think, women that he could have a pretty good relationship with. That's what I think is interesting. Yeah. And then he leaves them like the woman he leaves for Megan. Yeah, I, 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 I was about to ask you, why do you think he left Faye? Yeah, yeah. I think because precisely because, you know, she didn't want any more kids. She's challenging to him as a as a woman. Like she's she's she she pushes him in different directions psychically that he would is not like he he on the one hand is satisfied by, but on the other hand, flees from. So sure. And, and Megan is not that like Megan's someone to watch his kids. Right. Right. Like she's a good babysitter and that's what he falls in love with. I guess, right. you know, I, I, I think he's in love with Faye and leaves. he retreats from the love with Faye into this relationship with Megan. To me, it was, that's what end of season four. Yes. Devastating. Oh, it's devastating. It's no, it's devastating. Yeah. What, yeah. what what did you think of the scene in um I think it's season six near the end where he kind of fucks up the Hershey deal, but by actually speaking the truth about his past. Yeah. I thought I loved that moment. Me too. Like that's again a moment where the contradiction, he's just willing to like open up with it mm. in a way that no one else is. Just like when he takes his kids, I as you you know, I've said this on the podcast, yes. like I wish that it ended at the end of season six, because he takes his kids to the brothel and he says, this is where I'm from. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing point. But I, I understand the series doesn't want to give him, it's a kind of triumph almost, right? Mm. A triumph in defeat. And it wants to show him back reappropriated by capital. I, I get, I understand it, but I just think it would have been a much more radical ending to stop it at the end of season six. Oh, I love that. So do, do you have any like reactions toward the end of season seven? I mean, just, uh, yeah. What, what what are your thoughts on how it ends? Yeah, I think it's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's bad. Okay. I don't think it's like, oh, they ruined it. Like, I feel like, I don't know if you ever saw the series Battlestar Galactica. No, I didn't. Okay. So that's one up until the end, I would have really recommended it. And then it's like the end just kind of ruined it for me. Uh, this one isn't like, I, I hear people say that about Lost too, but I okay. didn't see Lost. Um, but I, I just think it didn't ruin it. But and I see why they did it. They had this very famous ad from the seventies. They wanted to connect everything back to, okay. And then he takes this, what for him, what seems like this radical experience outside of capital of, of chanting and meditation, and then brings it back right. within capital and into this Coca Cola ad. I don't know. I I mean I see why they did it, but I think it's a little. Because it's a, it's a, there's a certain kind of cynicism to it, right? Like right. every movement outside gets reappropriated back in. Mm. Okay, I, I, I don't want to misquote you, but I think in your episode on Hegel and religion, you said something like, um, "I, I kind of wish the church would would be the church of season six at the end, rather than you know the the, the season seven sort of ending." What, what what exactly did you mean by that? If 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 I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. What I meant by that was like the, you know, uh, Hegel has this line where he says, my philosophy is a speculative good Friday. Mm. And I, I, I like that. And I think that the, that the wow. season six is like good Friday and season seven is like Easter, right? Like that, like he's, he's come back out of the, you know, the season seven, he's driving around. That's like Christ in hell. You right, know? And, then, right. and then he comes back at the very end with that ad, I mean, we're supposed to, th I don't think we see him write it. Right. But we're supposed to think he, exactly. I think, I, I think the connection's pretty clear. Sure. Uh, uh, but I think the ending, it would be like ending on good Friday, the ending with the, you know, with, with in front of the brothel, because it's this moment where this great executive, this, this Titan of Madison Avenue, the best copywriter there is, right. Is identified with the most humble, setting and i think that's pretty pretty great and oh, that's so awesome. that that's that's all yeah okay so if, if i can just sort of piggyback off of your podcast i mean do you have a lesson yeah. for the audience what, what what's the takeaway if if i mean i i'm going to encourage them to read the book I'll, I'll include it in the show notes but if if no one ever reads hegel and they just listen to this what what's what's the big takeaway do you think 
Well, okay, so it's called therapy for guys. Like, is it the best <laughs> therapy for guys? I can I can duplicate a lesson because this is a this is a different podcast. So I might the best therapy for guys is Fight Club, right? Mm. Like it's so I think it's look, it's clearly gets misunderstood by people that start these fight clubs in order to beat other people up. Sure. Right. But the idea of the film is to to, to like punch at oneself, just like Don Draper. I mean, it's kind of what we've talked about the whole time. Like okay. reconciling with contradiction is precisely this, not physically punching at yourself, but actually like taking aim at the things that give you that are the, here's what I would say, like are the source of your symbolic identity and disinvesting yourself in those, mm. right? Like, like, Oh, am I uh, do I have a lot of money? Do I have a good high paying position? Do I have, do I have a, like, what's my status? Like all those questions. And I think they're really tied to how people conceive of masculinity. Oh, sure. And I think those are things that we should try to target and, and, you know, d devalue and, and disinvest in. Okay. So the lesson is to go watch Fight Club. <laughs> go watch Fight Club. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to share from your book or anything else that you're up to um, but before we, before we end? Well, I have a couple of, I'm not pimping them, so I and, and if, if people should try to steal them or get them for free, so <laughs> I have a couple of books coming out. So okay. one book is called Enjoyment Right and Left, and it's about this the way the politics, like enjoyment, in, inserts itself in political struggle. Sure. And then the other one is called The Racist Fantasy, and it's trying to think about racism in terms of unconscious fantasy, which you would think someone has already done, but they no one did it. So I thought I. Someone needed to Man, do it. Man, so. when, 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 when those come out, would you be open to having another episode? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And I'll say this too. I've, my, my mom um, did her graduate work at Middlebury. So she's always talked about um, Vermont. I've always wanted to go. So if I ever go up there, maybe we could do it in person. I have the equipment to do it in person. Oh, so, that would be that would be phenomenal. Yeah, and you should stop by for sure. We could go out to dinner or whatever. Yeah, no, my, my my treat for sure. Okay, well, would yeah. you mind just ending with sort of the line of the podcast, which is just continue the conversation? Not at all. Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great talking to you. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at qiqueautrey.com or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, Katie Teen and familycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation.